Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're checking back in with the politics of the United States and with Gary Gerstle. How has Joe Biden been doing? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Hi, Gary. Hi, Helen. Uh, we haven't talked about American politics for a while. It feels like a while. It probably isn't that long. Gary, are we 70 days into the administration? So we got 30 days before the magic arbitrary 100-day mark. How is Joe Biden doing? Inevitably, I'm not complaining about this. We personalize presidential administrations and we talk about them through the lead figure. But I think in Biden's case in particular, there's always a question, and particularly in this case, is it really him? Do you feel that this administration has his personal stamp on it? Or should we be paying more attention to the people around him? Who do you think is calling the shots? I think this is Joe Biden's presidency. He's got a good staff around him. He's made very good appointments. And it also should be said that the nature of his presidency so far has been shaped by the revival of the American left, the challenge that he has accepted and understands the left needs to be part of what he has to do going forward. He he is mellow. He is inarticulate at times. I watched his news conference. It started out very slow. He couldn't find the names of the reporters on the list. But he picked up steam. And I think the message of his campaign and also the message of his early presidency is that the man understands the challenge and is willing to think outside the box in order to repair the damage done to America during the Trump years and also put America on the road to recovery from the coronavirus and all the associated economic damage that went with it. I think you can see that this is his presidency most clearly in the urgency with which he greets the moment and also in his being drawn very deeply to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, you could say it's a mistake for any president to compare him or herself to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, one of the two greatest presidents of the last hundred years in terms of impact and influence. On the other hand, I would say that his first 70 days on his way to his first hundred days is more like Roosevelt's first hundred days, the legendary hundred days when he passed 15 pieces of legislation. It's more like that than any other president in my lifetime. He convened a secret meeting of historians or near historians to advise him about his predecessors, Roosevelt. LBJ. He did this March 2nd. The details have just been released recently. But I think it indicates he has his eye on history and he can't be the Joe Biden he was in the Senate and be successful, that he has to be a different kind of player, that the times have changed. So he understands the challenge. He understands that he has the opportunity to make a transformative difference in American society. And he is going about his business and his legislation in ways that suggests he's got to go as far as he can. So he's not that much more articulate than he was for much of the campaign, uh, but he's building his reputation on being a, a doer and a transformer. The word that he has chosen most recently to define what he's doing is that he's a paradigm changer. And it's been interesting to see how, as his reputation grows among American commentators, the reputation of Obama is correspondingly shrinking. Now, some of this is just overexcitement on the part of journalists wanting to be the first out of the gate to define the new presidency. But there is a sense that this is a different moment, that mistakes were made by past Democratic presidents 
in terms of their caution and that this is not a moment to be cautious, but to think big and think transformative. Helen, do you think that it's already clear that this is not what many people assumed it would be before he took office? It's not a caretaker presidency. There was an assumption that he would at best have to be a, a bridge from something to something. We're only 70 days in. It does seem a bit early for him to be convening the historians and thinking about his place in history. But anyway, is it early enough still to be able to say this isn't a caretaker presidency? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really interesting question about what has happened so far, because I think that there was a a fairly common assumption that this was going to be a a one term presidency because of Biden's age um, and that what we will be looking at in terms of the Democratic nomination next time would be Kamala Harris. But Biden has made it reasonably clear that he expects to be the candidate for the Democrats next time. Obviously, I think he said something about the subject of faith intervening. And that does change the way in which we might consider the decisions that he's made. And I think that it also throws perhaps some light on the fact that he put his vice president in charge of dealing with what has thus far been the most difficult problem he's been dealing with, which is what's going on down on the Mexican border. And uh, given the the history of the border politics and migration politics, that's a very difficult issue for Kamala Harris to have to deal with. So if you were sort of setting her up for her presidency, I don't think that that would be quite the move that you would do. So I have been quite struck by the fact that at the moment, this is being framed by Biden himself, I think, not just by what he's saying, but by some of the choices that he's made as not a a guaranteed one-term presidency. Now, how that transpires once he's had to put himself through the physical and mental trial of being president for a few years well into his 70s. I think that might be another question, but it it is a quite striking opening bid from him. Because when we talked about this before, there are always different clocks ticking in politics and time operates in different ways. There's the 100 days, which is primarily a journalistic device. There is the broad sweep of history. Where is he going to fit into the sweep of history? But we we discussed this before he started. There's the two-year ticking clock before the midterms. We were assuming back then, I think, that it was a one-term presidency. So he basically had a two-year presidency to get things done. And that means it is urgent. Gary, do you, do you think that time frame still holds? And there's also the question, I believe there's a special election in Georgia, means that there's another vote in Georgia for the Georgia Senate seat in a year's time. So it could only be a year. I mean, that not that the, the absolutely central time factor here to take advantage of his current position before the next elections in Congress? Yes, he understands he has a two-year window to get things done. Traditionally, incumbent presidents suffer reverses in the off-year elections two years after their election as the honeymoon period is over. It's not always the case. Uh, it was the case in, with Roosevelt in 1934 that he had, he had expanded his majority in Congress. But Biden clearly lives in fear of losing the House and the Senate in 2022, and the Republicans are doing everything they can to ensure that will happen by disenfranchising the voters who they think will lean Democratic in the 2022 election. So he has a two-year window, and he's thinking whatever he's going to get done as president has to be done well sooner than that, a year to 15 months. I think part of his strategy in terms of moving on so many fronts at the same time, and that's a, a risky strategy because you risk inflaming too many enemies and opponents and not getting anything at all done. The reason for moving so quickly is that he has to figure out a path toward victory in 2022, and he's banking on his legislative achievements 
to do that. And that's why he has put to the four legislative achievements that benefit all Americans, not particular groups of Americans that can be identified as Democrats or Republicans. The rescue plan has something for, I think, 73% of Americans. The infrastructure bill that he's going to unveil tomorrow is meant to appeal to all groups of Americans. He should, if economics breaks the right way, get a, a surge in the economy over the next year. So he's betting on handouts to individual Americans, the end of the coronavirus, a successful vaccine rollout, major infrastructural programs, putting tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people to work. He's hoping to therefore make a difference on the ground and thus demonstrate to Republican voters, not that he is ideologically with them, but their future will be better in his hands than in the hands of a Republican Congress. That is his wager, and that is the urgency. On the one hand, it's a two-year time frame, but on the other hand, he's operating with a a longer term time frame. And this is the reason for inviting historians in. And I agree with you, it's a little early in the presidency. But as long as he's looking for advice and not having his portrait done up yet, I think he'll be okay. I do, I do think he sees this as an inflection point in American politics, like the Great Society of the 60s, like the New Deal of the 30s. So on the one hand, he's got a very long time frame, and he wants to set America up well for this moment of inflection. On the other hand, he understands that his window is only two years, and uh, whatever he's going to get done has to be done really in a year to 15 months. And do you think this is still pandemic politics? I mean, he's, he has got a lot done, relatively speaking. But do you think this is all still really only explicable under the cover or the veil of the pandemic, that it's still a slightly artificial period because of the relentless focus still on vaccination and on economic recovery? Obviously, I don't think you can detach the pandemic from what's happening. It would be difficult to put through a 1.9 trillion rescue package outside the framing of the pandemic. On the other hand, there is more going on than that. If we take the fact that the size of this, let's call it a, a fiscal um, stimulus is so large and then that another one is coming and with the infrastructure bill is that that's only possible under conditions in which it's extraordinarily easy for the federal government to borrow money and there isn't any sense of financial market risk. I mean, there was some reaction in the bond markets, but I think the judgment is quite reasonably that this is not the time in which those risks are to the fore and that might not be the situation in a couple of years time, particularly if there's inflationary pressure starts to mount. But if we say, okay, is it simply the pandemic that's brought this monetary and financial situation about in which a stimulus of this size is possible? I don't think it is. It was clear before the pandemic, so certainly by the autumn of 2019, that the Federal Reserve had given up on any idea of going back to anything remotely approaching monetary normalcy. Also that you could see through the course of 2019 that in other countries, not in the United States because of Trump's position there, but this idea that infrastructure to support energy change could be used to drive economic growth to a, a higher level than it had been over the previous decade. That, I think, is already there and before the pandemic um, struck. So I think it's a sort of conjunction, really, of that it's easy to do something that directly provides checks to so many Americans. That's what the pandemic made possible. But I think it's something bigger than that, something broader than that, that has made a general shift towards federal government spending so much more money possible. And in a way that gets to, I think, what for many people is the slight puzzle here. Gary, as you suggested, it's not as if Joe Biden himself has turned out to be less sleepy than he was, if you see what I mean. I mean, he is still recognisably sleepy Joe, and he, he's not brimming with energy, and yet he's getting a lot done. And, and for some people, that feels a bit 
puzzling. It slightly goes against the grain of our understanding of democratic politics, which is that dynamic legislative agenda needs a dynamic politician. But I don't think that's necessarily true. But it also reminded me of something that the political scientist Samuel Huntington wrote in the 1970s. So in the famous book that he contributed to called The Crisis of Democracy, when there was a real panic in the mid 70s about whether democracy could survive all the things that were being thrown at it, including all the stagflation pressures, but also Watergate in the United States coming out of the Vietnam War, the tail end of the civil rights movement and the reaction against that. And Huntington said that what American democracy needs to recover is a period of exhaustion. It needs a time where people have had enough of politics, because that's the moment when it's possible to get things done, that what had happened through the 70s, there was a pitch of intensity around democratic politics, which particularly under the American system, creates all sorts of barriers to change, because the system is designed to make it hard for things to happen. So when people really care, it's hard to get things done. And that, to me, is part of the explanation here of why Sleepy Joe gets a lot done. He suits a period post-Trump where in that slightly exhausted state that I think everyone is in, you know, the, the draining of the energy, the viewing figures are down, the circulation figures are down, you can do things. And maybe one of the mistakes we make is that we think that getting things done in democracy needs heightened energy. Maybe it doesn't. It's not as though this administration is missing energy. I mean, Biden is the anti-Trump. He doesn't want to grab the headlines. He is not interested in waking us up every morning with chaos. There, there may be an element that he is allowing certain political processes to proceed by, by not inhaling all the oxygen in the room. So that may certainly be part of why he's able to move forward. I think I prefer uh, maybe a Jacob Hacker interpretation, a, a well-known political scientist in America, I prefer him to Samuel Huntington, also someone very attuned to how hard it is at any moment to get anything done in American politics and how much the political system is set up to frustrate large-scale dramatic change. And Hacker's theory is that there are moments where because of some crisis, usually generated by some exogenous event and an economic crisis, uh, could be war, could be mass insurgency in the streets. American politics opens up and briefly there's a moment to move things and a willingness of branches of government that have not been willing to work together to work together in uncommon comity. And I think we may be at this moment now. I do think that the reigning paradigm of American politics really since the 1980s and Reagan has been deregulation, celebrate markets, uh, everything associated with celebrating the free operation of markets free trade, free movement of people, free movement of information, free movement of capital. There is a sense that that policy set of instruments is exhausted now, much as the New Deal set of instruments was exhausted in the 1970s. Uh, so it's not simply a moment of exhaustion. It's a sense that a political order or a way of organizing politics that had dominated American politics for a long time, has in fact exhausted itself. And here, this also addresses the question of how much of this is pandemic, how much of this has to do with longer term trends. The trends against the market and toward reconsidering the role of the state in society and to forward questions of fairness and equity over questions of growth and, and free enterprise, all those have been percolating before 2020. But I think there's a way in which the, the pandemic has allowed the attack on that weak but still standing paradigm to accelerate. And here, 
the moment of exhaustion may be relevant. In other words, some of those who had been so vigilant in opposing this may themselves be exhausted. And I count the Republicans as being in their ranks. One of the striking things is how weak their attack on the 1.9 trillion rescue plan stimulus has been. And I expect a similarly weak reaction if Biden announces a $3 trillion infrastructure plan tomorrow. These are no longer Reagan Republicans. Something has happened to them and their party. There's a way in which Trump has sucked an important part of their agenda away from them. What they're trying to do is to talk about the banning of Dr. Seuss books and what's going on in the border. They're trying desperately to turn the conversation to cultural issues, make politics of today about cultural war where they still excel. But there is a sense that America is somewhat exhausted by that. So it's a very interesting and fluid moment in which I think big things are actually possible. Helen, they're not mutually exclusive. This is a crisis moment and no one should let a crisis go to waste. And also post-Trump, some of the heat does feel like it's gone out of American politics, some of it temporarily. And we'll come back to Trump in a second because he's been quiet, but he won't be quiet forever. Do you buy at all that idea that the opportunity, particularly in the American system, to get things done? And Huntington was thinking actually about what was going to come with Reagan, another quite in his way, sleepy politician, that there is a break, you know, after the the crisis, there isn't the deluge. After the crisis, there's a kind of draining of energy, which is an opportunity as well. And I think there must at some level in American politics at the moment be a kind of low ebb of the tide, which does create opportunities. It just feels so different from even two to three months ago, just energy-wise. There's paradoxical um, things going on in here in a way. There's no doubt that Trump's temporary absence has taken a set of very bitter passions out of the American policy. It doesn't feel as as dangerous a, a place. And at the same time, though, it's striking that really some of the things that Biden's um, done from the stimulus checks to a focus on infrastructure is the things that Trump would have been quite happy doing left to his own devices without having to work with Republicans uh, in Congress when he was president. So in that sense, I think that the rupture with the paradigm that Gary was describing comes with the, the 2016 election. You can see it very clearly in the way in which Trump talked about trade, which was very different than the language of free trade. It was trade in terms of strategic competition, particularly, obviously, um, with China. So the strategic approach of Biden here is to occupy ground that Trump was unable to occupy when it came to repudiating that economic paradigm and to do so under crisis conditions that mean that the majority of Americans are are going to benefit from both the stimulus uh, and that there's going to be jobs generated, um, significant numbers of jobs generated by the infrastructure bill and its green energy components, uh, perhaps in particular. And that makes it very difficult for the Republicans to oppose because the ground shifted for them. They found that the Republican Party that the leadership had presided over for some time was easily in the end destroyed by Trump and they have got to find a different way of doing politics. And I don't think under conditions in which it's so monetarily and financially easy for the federal government to spend extraordinarily large sums of money that the Republicans are going to try to turn themselves back into being fiscally conservative and that, as Gary says, leaves them basically to play in the on the cultural side of politics. But the, the paradigm is left behind. But I think the paradigm was actually left behind really in 2016. Gary, do you want to come back on that? Yes, I think 2016 is the decisive election. And the two stars of that election were Trump and Bernie Sanders, two people who were unimaginable as 
influential players in American politics as recently as five or six years before. The idea that Trump will get elected, the idea that Bernie Sanders would make himself the second most influential socialist in all of American history. Uh, no one could imagine this at all. So that was a, a moment of reckoning, uh, awakening. And I do think I agree with Helen that Trump is not bound by any of the Reagan shibboleths about economic policy. He doesn't really care about them. And he betrayed those principles in a very fundamental way. And I think now the Republicans are in trouble because they cannot pose as the party of fiscal discipline, responsibility. Trump has ruined that for them, at least in the short term. They have the cultural issues. And the other issue they have is to shrink American democracy to the point where it becomes an oligarchy. And hence, all their energy now is going into massive campaigns in numerous states where they control state legislatures to restrict the right to vote to those who are inclined to vote Republican. And the laws being passed in these states uh, are just stunning, including barring anyone from giving someone waiting in line to vote a bottle of water if they're out in the hot sun all day. It's the revival of a massive disenfranchised movement. And I think the the ardor with which the Republicans are embracing this is that they understand that as long as they are in their present state, the only way they can win in 2022 and 2024 is to shrink the electorate to Republican voters who happen to vote in a certain way, which can be protected by law. And so America becomes more and more of an oligarchy and less of a democracy. This has been Mitch McConnell's plan for some time, and it poses a deep and profound threat to American democracy. But it, it's an indication of desperation. It may succeed. By desperation, I don't mean to suggest that it won't succeed, but it's an indication of the desperation that this is the major issue to which the Republican Party has committed itself. I was recently writing about George W. Bush, who was president from 2001 to 2009. And when he won the presidency in 2001, he dreamed of creating a new Republican Party that would be the majority party in America for perpetuity. And it's a measure of how far we've come in that 20-year period where no one in the Republican Party, no one, talks about making it a majority party once again. And so they are stuck in a situation where they can constitutionally justifiably say we are behaving according to the law of this constitutional republic. But if they are successful, America will cease in a meaningful way to be a democracy. It will become an oligarchic republic. And, and this is the path that the Republicans have, have focused on. In, and I think it is an indication that in a larger sense, they have lost their way. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. We are only 70 days in and things will happen inevitably. They do in every presidency and they will in this one. Things will change and also we will reach a period which is recognisably post-pandemic politics and not pandemic politics. And we've talked a lot about this in the context of both British and European politics, some of the distributive questions, some of the questions about who has won and who has lost over the past 18 months that only really will come to the surface once the disease is in retreat are going to be very important for democratic politics everywhere, including in the United States. And I think it would be foolish to think that a skillfully led opposition anywhere, including in the United States, couldn't take advantage of that. I mean, Helen, don't you think that almost certainly though he's got a lot done in the first 70 days, there is a slight phony war aspect to this. I mean, if you think even over that two-year time frame, 
things are going to happen and choices are going to have to be made which do not satisfy 73% of Americans, do not just put checks in people's pockets. I, I mean, it's a big question. I say a skillfully led opposition, not least, because under the American system, it's not totally clear where leadership resides. Surely there will be opportunities for Republicans as well as opportunities for those on the left of the Democratic Party to to complain as well. First of all, I think that we shouldn't forget that this is a rather different political moment in a crucial respect than Franklin Roosevelt or Lyndon Johnson, because they were backed by big legislative majorities. And that isn't the position in which Joe Biden finds himself. As we know, there's a tie situation in the Senate and the the House of Representatives majority is um, small. In one sense, that makes it even more striking, the, um, the radicalism at least in terms of the size of spending money that Biden has engaged in. I I would say that the issue of the border will play out in a difficult way for the the Biden administration, that you can see that some of the people who are generally supportive of him have qualms about the approach there. And it's not difficult to see either the establishment Republican Party or Trump coming back to play havoc with that. I mean, we shouldn't forget that it was probably that issue more than any other single issue that helped Donald Trump win the Republican nomination in the first place. The whole question of the energy change is inevitably going to generate the politics of distributional conflict. It does produce winners and losers. And what is being attempted is, uh, you know, just an extraordinary transformation in what will be a very short period of time. Now, quite what shape those distributional conflicts will take and what the party political implications of them in any country's politics. I think that's a little bit harder to see. But I think that you know we are moving into a decade where it may well be that, that politics changes yet again in ways that we find unrecognisable from just a few years earlier. Gary, what's most surprised you to this point? So I have to say the thing that's most surprised me isn't to do with Biden, it's to do with Trump himself, his relative restraint. I, I remember saying on this podcast, the thing I was dreading was from day one of the Biden presidency, Donald Trump would be trolling him. But unless I've missed it, and I know he's banned from various platforms, but unless I've missed it, he isn't really trolling him. And Trump, who we were always meant to believe had no impulse control, seems to be controlling himself in some way, whether this is a plan, whether he's exhausted, um, whether he just thinks that he can pick his moment at some point, presumably he will pick his moment. But I had assumed that this would be taking place against the backdrop of a kind of Trumpy drumbeat of this guy's the biggest loser that we've ever seen. And I know he said it once or twice, but that and maybe I'm missing it because I'm not in the country, but that drumbeat doesn't seem to be there. There's a kind of silence where you might expect the the Trumpy roar to be. I think you're right. We shouldn't underestimate the fact that Trump's Twitter feed has been taken away from him. Uh, and having a strong voice beyond that Twitter feed requires him to engage in the kind of organizational politics, systematic getting out of a message that he's never been very good at. Uh, and one of his weaknesses as a politician, it was you know a great feel for the moment of putting out tweets that would galvanize people and outrage them or galvanize them into re- into incredible support for him. But the the Trump mo is not following through on a lot of things with effective organizations, and we might see the January sixth insurrection as an indication of that. Something he inspired, but the organization wasn't really there to make it a successful coup. And if it had been, he might have pulled it off. He was known in New York, even 
when he had this huge empire of running a mom and pop type operation and uh, not running a big sophisticated corporation with a few people doing a lot of different things. And so I think uh, having lost his bullhorn, he's not quite sure where to turn. That's an important consideration. There has been talk recently about him being in negotiations with various social media entrepreneurs to set up an independent platform. He's warned us he will be back like Arnold. Uh, I don't know if that's true or whether that's just more publicity just to bring attention to himself and, and to scare people. I think it's also worth pointing out that Biden has never been an easy target for Trump. Uh, and Sleepy Joe turns out to be someone who doesn't respond to the cues the way in which other people do from Trump's provocations and trolling. And so I think this is true of both Trump and the Republican Party. They don't quite know how to pin Biden down. He's, he stands outside the frame of politics as conducted in the age of Trump. He's done this very deliberately. It suits his personality. And so he's a moving target. The Republicans will eventually find a way, I think, to get him and to criticize him in very powerful ways, but they haven't found it yet. If you ask me what's been most surprising, it's Sleepy Joe rising to the challenge of this moment. I remember back to our conversations last spring and Super Tuesday where he snuck through and we thought at that point he might in fact become the nominee and none of us thought very much of him or his ability or his capability and not a distinguished senatorial career from a small state that didn't matter very much. So I think the biggest surprise to me is the quality of the campaign he ran and his understanding and his grasping of this challenge, this opportunity. I did not expect that from Biden. And I think the road ahead is perilous. I will never underestimate the sophistication of McConnell as an opponent, an opposition, as a fox. And the campaign the Republicans are plotting for 2022 may well succeed. So this Democratic experiment may be over in 2022. Uh, but I did not expect the there's a sophistication to the Biden strategy and also experiment with the ways of holding together a very fractious Democratic Party. I, I did not see that in him at an earlier time. I'm wrapping my head around the idea of Mitch McConnell as a fox. Something about that phrase makes me feel slightly queasy. Helen, what surprised you? I'm not sure whether surprise is quite the word because I had an open mind about what I thought he would do. I think the most striking thing in a way, leaving aside the size of the stimuli that he's put forward on the foreign policy side is about Iran. I thought he, he was unlikely to shift a significant gear on China, despite the fact that in some ways he had set things up for doing that by giving Kerry the climate czar job, which lent in the direction of of saying that we're putting a high premium on cooperation with China. And I think you can see he's still trying to do that on the climate side, but it, it's not been willing to make some exchange in which effectively you pursue detente with China for climate reasons and, and then accept that that might mean that you can't be so confrontational on the trade and technological side. He is trying to do both at the same time. On Iran, there hasn't really been any move away from the Trump position in terms of trying to resurrect the nuclear deal. Now, that may still come. It looks like, though, that it wouldn't come unless Iran was willing to make pretty significant concessions. That is striking because of the fact that the Iran issue had become a very partisan issue in American domestic politics. Almost all the Republicans were against the Obama's nuclear deal and the Democrats largely uh, in um, favour. And Trump was heavily criticised for the decision that he took about ending the nuclear um, deal with Iran. And we haven't, we're not really seeing thus far any real 
desire from Biden to go back to Obama's policy. And that fits in with the last thing I want to ask, because it was also assumed that the big transformation from Trump to Biden would be a change in the way the rest of the world thought about the United States. And I'm sure that is in part true. But part of the reason I feel, and I'm saying this because I'm viewing it from the UK, so it's an outsider perspective, but part of the reason why it feels like a slightly exhausted point in politics, which is where the opportunity lies, is that almost inevitably, there's just so much less interest, definitely in public opinion. I'm sure there's still a lot of interest in the corridors of power, but in public opinion terms, in coverage terms, in what Biden is doing relative to the obsessive interest in what Trump was doing, even though Trump was doing nothing and Biden is doing a lot. I mean, you really feel it outside the United States. I think people feel somewhat more positively about America, certainly those people who found the Trump years extremely distressing. But there isn't much of a sense that something big has shifted and America is back and global leadership is back on the table. I mean, maybe this is again a feature of pandemic politics. European leaders particularly have plenty of things to worry about on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis. American politics feels slightly distant again, unless I'm overstating it. The foreign policy dimension of the Biden presidency has been has been strikingly weak up until this point, as strongly as I feel positively about developments on the domestic front. I don't see similar kind of coherence on the foreign policy front. The border issue, of course, is both an internal issue and a foreign policy issue. And if you think of which issue has Biden fumbled the most, it's the border issue and the immigration issue. And if we extend that to think, how has he recalibrated America's relationship to the world? Uh, I don't think he's done that very effectively. There are initiatives, but there are not yet clear directions. There is not clarity. And I think uh, we have to remember, too, that what Biden has to repair did not begin with Trump. It began with Obama, with his articulation of an unfortunate policy message that we want to lead, meaning the U.S. should lead from behind, which never made any sense to me and, and still doesn't. But that marked the beginning of a retreat from Pax Americana. It began with Obama, it continued with Trump. And here it's important to remember that Biden was Obama's vice president, and many of the big issues that he dealt with were foreign policy issues during the Obama presidency. So he was part of this move away from Pax Americana. And I think we have to also think about the cumulative damage of all the turmoil in American politics, what it has done to America's standing in the world, what has to look to the rest of the world like assault on democratic principles and practices. In other words, the 2020 election, Uh, presidents increasingly ruling by executive order because they can't get congressional majorities in Congress. This too goes back to Obama. So who living abroad from the United States wants to enter into a serious discussion with a president who may only be effective for two years and may only be around for four years? I think there's a deepening sense of conviction in the world that America is no longer capable of providing the global leadership that it once did. And there's much stronger sentiment within the United States that Americans don't want to have that role thrust upon them in the same way that they have engaged it in the past. And this is another way in which there's this is part of a broader paradigm shift away from Pax Americana to something else. And of course, shifting from one paradigm or world order to another is is always a scary time in, in politics because the different powers of the world 
are unsure of their place and will remain unsure of their place until some kind of new set of international arrangements has appeared and has solidified. So I think that Biden has been weak and the world is right to be reluctant to put its trust back in the United States, both because the United States is uncertain about where it wants to lead and because of a growing conviction that long term, the United States, even if it embraces something valuable in the moment cannot be trusted to lead over the long term. There's a certain continuity that ran through Obama and Trump's foreign policy, if you think about it as having three principal parts of the world in which its American policy is engaged at the moment, China, the Middle East and Russia. It's not that there are no differences in what was pursued during each of these presidencies, not least the question of the Iran nuclear deal. I'd say that was a significant dividing line, but there are more continuities. I think the one area where we can really say there was a difference, the issue of climate, in which Obama guarded the Paris Climate Accord of 2015 as one of the big achievements of his presidency, obviously particularly the uh, second term. And it was the way in which his pivot to Asia and a little bit more confrontational policy with China was qualified. The one really distinctive thing then that Biden's done in changing America's position from the Trump years is to go back to the Paris Climate Accord and and to go back to trying to work with China on climate. And so I don't think that that should be underestimated as a as a change. And I think this is maybe why I don't quite agree with Gary, is what's taken the Biden administration back is, is the position that the European Union countries, particularly Germany, have taken on a set of issues, even before Biden took power, particularly agreeing the, the investment accord with China. Now, in the last 10 days or so, because of the, the various sanctions and counter sanctions that have been put on by individuals and the fact that the Chinese moves have rather taken the European Union countries back, we might be seeing some movement towards alignment between the EU position and the American position on China. Generally, I think that it's as much as to do with the ways in which the European Union in particular has responded to the set of geopolitical predicaments in play that explain the state, if you like, of Atlantic relations as any decision that's being made in Washington. We will come back to the question of what comes after Pax Americana in future episodes, because it is a huge one. On History of Ideas this week, a very different kind of subject, I'm talking about Simone de Beauvoir. Next week, I'm talking about John Rawls. And next week on Talking Politics, I'm going to be speaking to the filmmaker Adam Curtis about his new series of films on the BBC, Can't Get You Out of My Head, which are about, well, I think they're about absolutely everything. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. How am I sounding now? Good. It's fine. Just um, don't you know, don't scream. Don't get excited. Write, write a note to yourself and say, "Don't shout, Gary." Or uh, be be like Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. Don't pro- don't provoke me. Let's get one thing clear. Here's the deal. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Is that your Joe Biden? Okay. <laughs> <laughs>